Okay, so we're reading from Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through to 23. Now, the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they are afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of the unleavened bread on which Passover lamb had to, um, had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? Um, they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, <clears throat> and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, <coughs> excuse me, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Thank you for that, Mandy. I don't know if you've been um, following the news about the Queen over the last few weeks. I think it was about maybe a month ago, three or four weeks ago, that they... Um, announced that the Queen had COVID and she was a bit unwell and uh, most, most of the reports was that she was sort of handling it pretty well. Um, although over the last few weeks there's been lots of articles about, ah, oh, the Queen missed this appointment or she, you know, couldn't meet with these people in person. Um, so there's been lots of sort of intrigue in it. Poor, poor thing, the Queen, a poor 95-year-old woman, you know, decides to have a day at home to recover from COVID and it makes world headlines. Um, I think she probably deserves a bit of a break. Um, but... Hopefully the Queen will recover and keep on going. And, um, uh, but, but sadly, the truth is, as a, someone who's 95, the Queen is getting older and older. And uh, one day in the next few years, probably, we will hear the news that the Queen has died. And that it will be a sad day. Her rule uh, will have come to an end, which, of course, is how it works. A ruler dies uh, and their rule comes to an end. Uh, a totally different example, totally at the other end of the spectrum, but um, another ruler who's in the news a lot at the moment is um, Vladimir Putin. I read an article this week about uh, how some of the experts are sort of watching him and thinking, actually, 
I actually reckon that maybe Putin's quite close to the end of his life as well. Maybe they're kind of speculating, does he have cancer or something like that? Um, and one of the reasons perhaps uh, for the invasion of Ukraine is that uh, he kind of wants to leave a bigger legacy knowing that he's getting to the end of his life. He knows as soon as he dies, and frankly we might hope he dies soon, um, he knows as soon as he dies that his rule will come to an end. Uh, well, this term at Trinity Church Brighton, we've been following the story of another ruler, King Jesus, uh, we've been looking this week, uh, looking at this week that Jesus spent in Jerusalem. Uh, and we started reading about uh, the day that Jesus entered the city. He, he came into the city claiming to be king, and we've spent now a number of weeks looking at uh, who Jesus is over those uh, days. He, he, he's backed up his claim to be the king. He's talked about where his authority comes from, uh, what he expects of his followers. And he's done all these things, and all those things have come up as we've observed Jesus. He's been discussing in the temple. He's been having these discussions, these arguments with, with Jewish leaders and talking with his disciples in the temple uh, during this, this Easter week. But today, we finally leave uh, the temple behind. We've come to the beginning of what's going to be a very long night, uh, a night of trials. Jesus' followers are going to be put to the test. Jesus himself is going to be put on trial He's going to be arrested, and uh, 24 hours later, he's going to be dead. The time for Jesus' death has finally arrived. But what we're going to see in our passage today is that strangely, unlike any other ruler, Jesus' death is not the end of his rule. It's the beginning. Now, when the queen dies, her rule comes to an end. When Putin will die, his rule will come to an end. Anyone else we can think of, they die, they die and their rule comes to an end. But with King Jesus, the moment of death is the very moment that his rule begins, the very moment that his kingdom is established. It's a significant moment in many ways. It's the moment that the whole of the Bible has been pointing to, that the climax of everything, the moment when God's people would be saved and when a new eternal kingdom would begin. And really, we see today, as clearly as anywhere else in the Bible, we see today what's required if we're going to join Jesus and be part of this new kingdom that he's establishing. So as we begin to look then at the death of Jesus, we have three points, uh, three things I want us to notice as we look at the reading today that Mandy's read for us. Jesus' death is a deliberate death. Jesus' death is a long-planned death. It's been the goal. It's been what the Bible has been working to for a long time. And thirdly, it's the beginning, not the end. A deliberate death, a long-planned death, the beginning, not the end. Uh, So first of all, Jesus' death is a deliberate death. Uh, As we look at the passage, the the way the passage starts off, actually, is we see that there are lots of reasons for Jesus' death, lots of kind of factors that come together to bring about the death of Jesus. It it starts off like this. uh, The festival of the unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching, getting close to this festival, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, uh, for they were afraid of the people. And one of the things that leads to Jesus' death is Uh, These Jewish Jewish leaders, they're conspiring. They're trying to work out how to get Jesus out of the way. But then verse 3, there are also spiritual factors that lead to Jesus' death. Satan entered entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. It was pointed out to me this week that Satan, uh, he's actually been seen before in the book of Luke. He last was on the scene all the way back near the start, right back in chapter 4. It's the story of Jesus being tempted in the desert. And you get to the end of that story and it says, 
uh, in verse 13, Satan finished tempting Jesus and left him until an opportune time. And well, here we are, we're about to come to this night of trials, this night before the Passover, and Satan thinks this is the time to enter the story again. Satan's back on the scene, the opportune moment. So there's conspiracy involved, there's the spiritual things involved. Uh, in verse 4, Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard uh, and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. And they were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. So uh, conspiracy has been part of what's led to the death of Jesus. Betrayal now uh, is, is what's leading to the death of Jesus. It involves also greed. Money is involved leading to the death of Jesus. It involves, as we said, Satan and the spiritual side as well. The Jewish leaders want Jesus dead. Judas is happy to see Jesus dead. Satan wants Jesus dead. But there are all these factors, but what none of them realize is that there's only really one person who's in control of Jesus' death, and that's Jesus himself. All these people think they're going to get Jesus once and for all, but what's made clear to us is that Jesus goes to his death willingly and deliberately. He's in complete control of everything. And actually, we, as the reader, we know this because if we've been reading Luke's gospel so far, we've seen that Jesus has been complete in complete control. Uh, right back in chapter 9, he set out for Jerusalem, and even then, he said he's going to go and he's going to be handed over to the authorities. And then in chapter 18, a bit later on, but he's even more clear, he tells his disciples they're going to get to Jerusalem, and then he's going to be killed. He knows what he's going for. And if we need another reminder, just in case we're starting to think that oh, all these different things are starting to uh, put Jesus into a trap, we see here that just how in control Jesus is. Verse 7, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked. And he replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large room upstairs all furnished, make preparations there. So they left and found things just as Jesus had told them. Uh, so they prepared the Passover. Jesus knows exactly what's going on. He's completely aware, completely in control, completely sovereign. He knows that if the disciples go into town, they'll just happen to come across this guy carrying a jar of water. And if they kind of follow him, sneak around behind him and see where he's going, you know, see which house he's going to. He knows that if they go to that house, there'll be a room that's perfect place for them to uh, spend the Passover. Jesus is not falling into a trap. He's not being fooled by Jewish leaders or Judas or Satan. He's in complete control of what's going on. It's very clear for us. And we see this. Even more as Jesus actually uh, eats the Passover. Uh, It says here, when the hour came, you might have noticed the building tension of the narrative. It started off saying, oh, it was time for the festival. And then it said, now it's time for the day of the festival. And now it's saying, here's the hour. Um, It's the very hour of the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. I have a, uh, I have a grandmother who's quite close to the end of her life. And at uh, Christmas, she's sort of a pretty nonchalant sort of person. She tends to say, ah, oh, this will probably be my last Christmas. Really kind of lifts the Christmas spirit. And, and funnily enough, she's actually said it three or four Christmases in a row and she's still going pretty strong. But Jesus... He knows what's about to happen. I've eagerly desired to eat this with you before I suffer. 
because I'm not going to eat it again. This is going to be my last one. And we see how in control he is too in the next couple of verses as well. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And we just keep getting reminded of his control again and again and again. He took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, he took the cup. This, is, uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. He knows exactly what's going on. And uh, just in case you think he is getting trapped by this betrayal of Judas one more time, just to re-emphasize the point again and again and again, but the hand, this is Jesus, but the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. And they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Imagine being Judas, thinking you've sort of got, Judas, got Jesus right where you want him and he doesn't suspect anything, but Jesus is completely aware. Judas would have felt a little bit awkward at that moment, I think. The death of Jesus, it involves conspiracy, it involves betrayal, it involves spiritual attack from Satan. But what we're hit with again and again and again in this story and through the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus knows exactly what's going on. He's calm. He's in control, and in fact, more than that, he deliberately chooses to go to his death because he knows what's at stake. Things haven't gone off the rails. God's plan isn't ruined. Satan hasn't actually come at the opportune time. Satan maybe thinks he's about to come and stop Jesus right at the very moment where he's about to save everyone. But what Satan doesn't realize is that Jesus knows that his death is going to be the moment that his kingdom is established. It is his death that's going to bring about his kingdom. His death is a deliberate death. Now, our second point is that Jesus' death is also long planned. We've sort of already gone through our passage now, but what I want us to do is uh, now just think a little bit more deeply about what we're reading about. Uh, and particularly what I want us to do is to think about the Passover, the festival that Jesus and his disciples are eating together. Because really understanding what's going on with this festival that they're celebrating is really when a lot of the Uh, richness and the meaning of what we're reading comes out and the understanding of what's going on with these things that Jesus says. Now, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Passover. I know lots of you will be. Uh, It was a Jewish festival. It was a time when the Jews would get together each year to remember something that had happened much earlier. Uh, They remembered something that had happened in Egypt about uh, 12 to 1500 years before uh, Jesus. And like we celebrate uh, Christmas or Easter uh, here in in Adelaide, well, what Jesus did a couple of thousand years ago, that's what we celebrate, um, it's similar for the Jews. They also looked back and celebrated things from their past, from their history. They looked back and celebrated the Passover. Now, when the Passover happened, the, the story goes like this. The Jews were slaves in Egypt. Just imagine that for a minute. You know, you might even, uh, you could even close your eyes for a minute if you want. Just imagine you're a slave in Egypt. It's 1300 BC or something like that. Uh, And your people had been in Egypt for 400 years. Egypt has been all you've ever known. Slavery was all you'd ever known. So you would have had a pretty rough life, um, building things for the Egyptians, uh, making crops. At some point, you probably would have gotten used to it. I mean, you would have made the most of your occasional breaks and your time off, and you would have still enjoyed raising a family, and slavery would have been all you would have known. So uh, you would have probably put a brave face on it and kept going. Uh, So you're living in slavery, but then through Moses, God came and said, hang on, everything's going to change. We're going to free the people. And 
everything's just kicked off. There's been these plagues. And then one day, the word comes through, there's going to be a final plague. It's going to be a Friday night. It's going to be late in the week. The, the angel of death is going to come to Egypt. And God is going to take what he's owed. There's, there's always been a sense that uh, people owe God their first. You know, they, they owe God their first fruits, their first crops, their firstborn animals. And kind of the idea is if you trust God with your first crops or with your first animals uh, and, and you give those to God, then you're trusting that God can provide more. So the angel of death, it's going to come to Egypt. It's going to take what God is owed. It's going to take the life of every firstborn animals and humans too. Every firstborn son is going to be taken by this angel of death. But the good news is God has given you a way to spare the life of your firstborn. And he's given clear instructions. You're to take a lamb. You're to bring a lamb into your house for, for the week leading up to the Friday night. Growing up, um, we had sheep where I lived and I remember once or twice a lamb was sort of rejected by its mother and we would have to kind of bring it into the house for a couple of days and give it some milk and care for it. Uh, so I can picture a little bit about what it might have been like, a little bit messy. The lamb comes into your house. In a way, it becomes almost like a, fa- a member of your family for a few days. But then on the Friday night, you're to kill the lamb, roast the lamb, eat the lamb, and take the blood of the lamb and paint the blood on your doorposts, as you can see in the picture. When the angel of death comes on that night, he's going to pass over because in your house, blood has already been shed. I just imagine living in one of those Jewish houses during that week. Maybe you were the firstborn son. You know, Friday night comes, the, the lamb's being slaughtered, you're getting to eat some roast lamb for dinner, but you're probably freaking out, pestering your dad. Make sure you do the blood on the doors, dad. I, I'm a bit worried here. And bedtime comes, you know, I can, I can imagine you probably peek outside just to make sure, yep, the blood's still there. And the parents are telling you to go to bed because, you know, you need your sleep. We're going to be leaving tomorrow, probably. We're going to have to do a lot of walking. You probably go to bed, you lie in bed, you probably uh, be pretty frightened, probably listening maybe for the sound of an angel of death. don't know what the angel of death sounds like, but eventually you fall asleep and in the morning you're awakened by the sounds of screaming and wailing because all down your street, all over Egypt, firstborn sons haven't woken up. And you would go outside and you would see the blood on your door and you would be very aware that the lamb had died so that you could be spared, so that you could be set free, redeemed from slavery. And after that day, the Jews would be allowed to leave. You'd be off with your family, off to freedom. Now, this night became a hugely significant night for the Jewish people. And every year, you'd have the anniversary of the Passover. It would come around and you'd celebrate it. Uh, not just celebrate it, but you'd reenact it. Uh, not, not because the angel of death was going to come again every year, just not because a sacrifice had to be make, made again every year, um, but because by remembering the Passover, they remembered who they were. They remembered that God had given them freedom. They remembered that their freedom from slavery had come at a price. It had come at the price of the shedding of blood. And as Jewish people grew up, they got used to every year they would have the Passover, they would have the Passover together. And they felt a deep sense of belonging as they celebrated with their people. They would have felt a unity with all those who had come before them and with all those who were there in Egypt on that very first Passover night. 
And so Jesus, he would have grown up, he was Jewish, of course, and so he would have grown up eating the Passover every year, looking forward to it every year. In some ways, it was probably the closest equivalent of of Christmas, uh, this exciting time of year when you'd be able to celebrate with your family. Uh, And every year, you'd have a big Passover meal, you'd get all the extended family together, and you'd have all sorts of traditions. Uh, Every year, they had flat uh, flat unleavened bread, and someone would stand up and say, "Uh, this is the bread that our ancestors ate in Egypt. Um, they ate the bread in hope that they would be able to leave and set, uh, be set free from slavery. And you do all these sort of things. You'd, you'd drink wine. Uh, actually, through the night, you'd have these specific four cups of wine that you would have at different times. Uh, the first one, someone would get up and say, this is the cup. This is the cup that uh, reminds us that God promised to free us from our oppressors. And then the second cup, a little bit later, someone would say, this is the cup that reminds us that God promised deliverance. And so on and so on. And so there are all these traditions, all these things that you would do during the night. Uh, the youngest child would always have some things they had to do, some questions they had to ask. And so now flash forward to Jesus and the last Passover that he has, the one that he says, this is the last one I'm going to get to celebrate with you. What we realize is that what Jesus did on that night is perhaps not quite so unusual. You know, because he stood and he said something about the bread and he stood and he said something about the wine. But what he does do is also, at the same time, it's stunning because, well, he says in verse 16 that the Passover needs to find its fulfillment, that it's actually not, wasn't about the Passover, it's been pointing to something, it needs to be fulfilled. And then he stands and he talks about the bread and rather than say what he's meant to say, which is, you know, this is the bread that our ancestors ate in Egypt. No, he says, this is my body. And this time he doesn't say, this is the wine that tells us about God's deliverance. He said, this wine is my blood. And suddenly, with a few words, this meal that had been eaten for hundreds and hundreds of years was suddenly transformed. Suddenly, we realized it wasn't about what happened in the past anymore. That was all just pointing to this moment. That was all a pointer to God's ultimate plan. True redemption was never going to come through the blood of a sheep. True forgiveness was going to come the very next day. Jesus' body was going to be broken. His blood was going to be shed. He was going to die to bring redemption, to bring freedom, to bring life, to usher in the start of a new people. And the only thing that uh, doesn't get talked about when Jesus was there with his disciples that night, you notice the narrative that Luke wrote down, you know, he talks about what Jesus said about the cup, what Jesus said about the bread. Um, what's, what's strikingly absent is the main event, that the Passover was all about the lamb. You notice Luke doesn't say anything about the lamb. I I take it Jesus probably did eat lamb that night with his disciples. It was his last ever Passover. I certainly would have been turning down a roast lamb dinner. But the lamb never gets mentioned. I wonder why that is. Well, I think it's because the real lamb wasn't there on the table. The real lamb was at the table. Jesus himself was going to be the lamb, slaughtered so that his people might have life. You see, the death of Jesus was a deliberate death. He's totally in control of what's going on. It was a long planned death. This has been anticipated and pointed to for hundreds of years, year by year, as the Jews had the Passover together. It was all pointing to this moment. Our last point then, Jesus' death was not the end, but the beginning. We thought this morning a bit about what it would have been like to be one of those Jews back in Egypt. Living as a slave, of course, would have been awful, but we also said, you know, perhaps you would have gotten used to it at some point. 
It was all they knew, of course. They'd been there for 400 years. And this idea of being set free, of being able to uh, leave Egypt, well, that, that would bring up so many different emotions, wouldn't it? It would be, it would be exciting, going to get to leave this place. But it also would be a bit scary, you know, it's unknown. What, what are we going to be leaving to? I mean, in some ways, the Passover was the end, you know, it was the end of their slavery, it was the end of their time in, in Egypt, they were saying goodbye. But in a much greater way, it was the beginning. The day after the Passover, the Israelites were freed. They became a new people, God's people. They headed off to cross the desert to begin a new life in the Promised Land. And of course, if we know the Bible, their unfaithfulness meant that things didn't exactly go uh, as planned. But the point is, for the Jewish nation, this was the beginning. This was the foundation moment. And it's the same with Jesus and with his people. His death wasn't, wasn't the end, it wasn't a tragedy, like some people sometimes talk about the Easter story as a tragedy. You know, Satan might have thought that he was going to ruin God's plans for good, and maybe the Jewish leaders thought they would get rid of Jesus forever. But everything went just as God had been planning it for hundreds and hundreds of years. Jesus died, the sacrifice was made, the blood was shed, and his people were redeemed. And his new eternal kingdom was established. With Jesus raised to life again to rule over that people. His death was just the beginning of his rule. And just like the Jewish people celebrated the Passover, uh, remembering their freedom and their birth of their people, well, as part of Jesus' kingdom, we gather together. And like they gathered together as families, we gather as our family, our church family, to take together a new meal, the transformed version of the Passover. We take together the Lord's Supper, which we're going to do in a few moments. But before we do take the Lord's Supper together, I just want to um, ask one final question, and that is, if Jesus' kingdom was established a couple of thousand years ago at his death and resurrection, if that was the beginning, well then, how do we take part in Jesus' kingdom? How do we join this new people, this people that he's ruling over? And I want to take us just one more time to think about being back in Egypt again. I want you to think about some of these parallels. I want us to imagine one more time that we're back in Egypt, it's Passover night. And just imagine the different things that you might be feeling, the different things that different people might be feeling. And I want to just do a little bit of an experiment of it. I want to just kind of make up four hypothetical Jewish people who were there in Egypt that night. Um, I wrote down Seb, Sophie, Sam and Sadie, some nice Jewish names, I thought. Um, I take four Jewish people. Um, it's coming up to Passover. Maybe Seb. Seb maybe is really excited. He's, he's confident. He's looking forward to getting out of Egypt. He's looking forward to freedom. Uh, but then I don't think everyone would feel like Seb, would it? Maybe you're a Seb, but um, think, of, think of Sophie. Maybe Sophie is a bit maybe sceptical about the whole thing. You know, do we, even, do we even know that this angel of death is really coming? Do we really believe this? I, I don't know. If I, I, I want to believe that we're going to be set free, but I'll believe it when I see it, maybe. And maybe, maybe Sam. Maybe Sam, um, maybe Sam isn't actually sure that he wants to be set free. You know, actually, I, I get that, that there's this idea of freedom, but... I'm really not sure what we're getting into. Life isn't so bad in Egypt, you know, and it's all I've got. It's all I've gotten used to. I've gotten used to it. You know, I, I kind of like Egyptian food. Is this salvation really what I want? Could, could we really just leave all this behind? I, I have some questions about this before we get going. And uh, I think Sadie was the last of the four names. Sadie, <laughs> Sadie uh, maybe Sadie's really scared, deeply scared. I mean, an angel of death is coming. And that's freaky. How are you meant to sleep when there's an angel of death going to go down your street? 
She's anxious, worried, terrified about what's going to happen next. Filled with fear. So you have all these four people who do feel different sorts of things and there probably could be other things you could feel as well. And Passover night comes and all four of them, well, all four of them decide to paint the blood on their doors. And my question is, who is going to get redeemed? Who's going to be passed over that night? Who's going to get to be part of God's new people? Seb is really confident. Sophie is skeptical. Sam isn't sure. Uh, Sadie is scared. But they all decide to paint the blood. And the angel of death passes over all four of them just the same. You see, we don't get into Jesus' kingdom based on the certainty of our convictions, based on feeling a certain way. We don't get into Jesus just because we're really strong in our faith or because we feel confident and not scared. We get into Jesus' kingdom because we trust in the blood of the Lamb. Today, as we come to take the Lord's Supper together, we might come with some doubts, we might come with some fears, we might come with some uncertainties. We might be really confident, we might be sure of our faith, or we might feel like we haven't actually done a good job of trusting Jesus this week. We might be really sure that we, uh, we want this. We might, we might have, have questions about whether the freedom Jesus offers is really worth it as well. But we're all faced with the same choice. Will we paint the blood of the Lamb on our doorsteps? Will we, uh, our doorposts, will we choose to trust in Jesus? And not that taking the Lord's Supper is magical or that particularly does anything. It doesn't save us. There's no magical going on. There's nothing magical going on. It just represents something. But as you choose to eat the bread and as you choose to drink the juice, it's a physical way of saying and showing and saying, my trust is in the one whose body and blood was shed for me. And I want God's punishment to pass over. I want to take Jesus' blood in my place. As you do it, as you, as you physically, as you choose to eat and drink, you're saying that you want to be part of Jesus' eternal kingdom, the kingdom that is established at Jesus' death. And uh, just like with the Passover that the Jews celebrated, as we take the Lord's Supper, we remember what Jesus did. We also remind ourselves that in Jesus we're forgiven and we're loved, we're his beloved children. We also look forward, Jesus said he won't eat it again until his kingdom comes. We look forward to eating it again with Jesus one day. And as we take it, we're also reminded of Christ's body and his blood. We're encouraged, we're strengthened to continue in faith. As we take the Lord's Supper together, we remember as well that we're part of a people. We're a people that's gotten together like this for a couple of thousand years. We've celebrated Jesus together. And even going back even further than that, we're also connected to those Jewish people who took the Passover year after year after year, after century after century, way back to those original Israelites who were there on that very first Passover night. You can see, can't you, that what we're doing today is an incredibly significant and meaningful thing. Now we're going to take the supper in just a minute. If you're a regular, you know, as we come to take the Lord's Supper together, we always have a few things that we tell you about. We always say that if you're a visitor and you don't have a faith in Jesus, that, uh, well, this is, this is a way of expressing our faith in Jesus. So if you don't have a faith in Jesus, it doesn't especially make sense for you to take uh, the bread and the juice. We also say that if you're a visitor from another church, from a different church background, uh, that we, we, we love, if you have a faith in Jesus, for you to join us in the Lord's Supper. What I would say as well, just to add to all of that today, um, as we've been talking about, you may have doubts, you may have uncertainties, you might have fears or questions or things you're not proud of. 
But if you would like to choose to put your trust in Jesus today, well, you are welcome to do that. You're welcome to eat and drink of the bread and the blood. It's a way of saying that today I want to choose to trust in Jesus. It's a physical way of saying that I want to paint that blood on my doorpost. I want to say that I belong to this new kingdom. We always say too that we don't believe that age is a barrier to membership in God's people. Back at the Passover, the original Passover, you know, the children were very much included. They ate the lamb, they ate the meal with their parents. Uh, of course, through the centuries, it was the, the youngest child who always had some questions to ask at the Passover. And so we continue that tradition. We include our youngest members in, uh, in the Lord's Supper. And as it was with the Jewish Passover, it was all about explaining to the young ones what was going on and, and showing them the meaning of what was behind all the symbols. And so we'd like to continue that tradition as well. And we encourage our parents to say to their kids and explain to their kids what's going on as we take the Lord's Supper. Of course, um, obviously today our kids have already gone out to kids' church, uh, so it's a bit different. But we normally like to do uh, the Lord's Supper early in our service for that reason, so that our kids can participate. As we come to take the Lord's Supper together, we normally begin by remembering that all of us in lots of ways have failed to live God's way. And so we come and we begin by confessing our sins together, and so we're going to do that now. Um, After we pray, we're going to have the band come up, we're going to sing a song for a couple of minutes as we reflect. And then I'll get, get back up and we'll, um, we'll eat the bread and the juice together. As I said earlier, they're in these pre-packaged things today. Um, so do try and make sure you have one. I think there's plenty around. There's a few more over here if you, um, if you can't find one. Uh, we are just using these at the moment for COVID reasons. Uh, and I should just mention that they're not gluten-free, unfortunately, for those who are affected by that. But let's pray now out loud together this prayer of confession. Let's prepare our hearts and then, uh, then we'll hear from our band and we'll, we'll sing together. Let's pray together. God of grace, you love us, but we have not loved you. You call, but we have not listened. We walk away from neighbours in need, wrapped up in our own concerns. By our actions and our attitudes, we praise what you condemn. Help us to admit our sin, so that as you come to us in mercy, we may repent, turn to you, and receive forgiveness. Through Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Amen. Isaiah 43 says, uh, this God says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sin no more. He is that kind of God. Let's stand. Let's sing together, Man of Sorrows. And then we'll come back and we'll eat and drink together.